And while our kids are making their way back, I want to say hey and thanks again. And I want to introduce our special guest this evening. We have Dr. Bob Hyatt here with us. He's laughing, but he is a doctor, and we should be clapping. Yes, Sherry, thank you. Bob is the Director of Equipping and Spiritual Formation of the Ecclesia Network, a network to which we belong. Ecclesia is a network of relational churches. And Bob came into our church's life before we were even the neighborhood church. Bob was here in about 2015, and he was helping us recalibrate, reconstitute into what would become the core team that became the neighborhood church. And so in that way, he was equipping us for the road ahead. Bob serves also as a coach to pastors like myself. Bob coached for a season, Pastor Bud, and Bob helps equip those for the work in their contexts, but he also helps us become formed. So in spiritual formation, Bob does things like he did with our church this morning, with a workshop and a mini retreat to help us ground and root ourselves in who we are and whose we are. And so we had a wonderful time together this morning hearing about our identity, our work, and our roles, and how we sometimes get those mixed up, but how we can stay grounded in who we are in Christ. So Bob has helped equip us. Bob has helped form us. Even if this is your first time meeting him, I'm not saying by hyperbole, but I really mean he's really helped us become who we're meant to become. We have leadership circle calls that we have, and so though you may be seeing him for the first time tonight, know that he has helped us and other churches just like ours all across our network. And we're grateful to have him here tonight telling us about Abraham as we begin a new series called Faith of Our Forerunners. So let's welcome Bob. Come on up, my friend. You make me sound pretty good. Good evening, Neighborhood Church. It's good to be with you. Don't worry, it's soundproof. Now we'll speak louder. I'm just getting set up. Um, yeah, thank you, Adam. It's so good to be with you guys and to journey with you over these uh, this last decade, really. Um, and I think that's about how long I've, I've known you, right? Yeah. Something like that. So, um... We have a family tradition. I don't know how it started. I think my wife started doing it just for fun. But like on Christmas Eve, we always buy lottery tickets uh, for the kids. It's like we scratch them off and, you know, yay, $5. Uh, I think that's probably about the most we've ever gotten. Um, any of you guys? I, it's, it's church. Uh, we probably shouldn't be talking about this. But is anybody ever like, yeah, yeah, play the lotto, yeah, that kind of thing? Do you ever think about what it would be like to win? Not really. Not really? <laughs> yeah, 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 you just hope that you, like, make your money back, that's it, but no, you, you have those daydreams, right, where you think about, yeah, if I ever did win that billion-dollar mega super jackpot or whatever, you know, you just think about all the good stuff that you could do. Um, listen to this, 
This is uh, a, a story from the news. William Budd Post III, 66, whose 16.2 million in lottery winnings brought him debt, despair, and heartache, causing the kind of trouble often recounted in country western songs, died of respiratory failure January 15th at a Pittsburgh area hospital. Ah, this is already rough. Everybody dreams of winning money, but nobody realizes the nightmares that come out of the woodwork or the problems, he said in 1993, five years after winning the Pennsylvania lottery. His problems included a brother who tried to hire a contract murderer to kill him, and his sixth wife, kill him and his sixth wife, a landlady who forced him to give her one-third of the jackpot, and a conviction on an assault charge after Mr. Post fired a shotgun at a man trying to collect a debt at his deteriorating dream house in northwestern Pennsylvania. He went bankrupt, came out of it with one million free and clear, and then spent most of that windfall too. And the story ends with him saying, I was much happier when I was broke. Sometimes getting exactly what you want can be the worst thing that can happen to you. In fact, you could really see the story of the Bible. One way you could look at it would be the story of humanity getting what it wants and choosing self over God and finding that to be incredibly destructive. But then God wooing and winning us back away from our idols, away from ourselves to himself, giving us what we really need. So one of the main threads as you read through this is the rejection of idols and the embrace of the redeeming God. And that's what we're going to talk about um, tonight in a roundabout way as we look at a story that has made a lot of people Maybe even you scratch their heads. But first, back to where we began, have you ever thought, like I said, about the fact that sometimes getting exactly what we want turns out to be a disaster? And I want to ask you guys, this is a non-rhetorical question, why do you think that might be? Uh We We don't really know what's good for ourselves. We think we do, but often we don't. What else? Hmm? Adventure, what do you mean? Ah. Exactly. So sometimes when you get what you want, the question is, well, what's next? Now what do I do? Yeah. Any other thoughts? What else? In the New Testament book of Romans, Paul writes that sometimes judgment looks like when God gives someone exactly what they want. The phrase he uses, giving them over to the desires of their heart. And the reason why that's judgment, why it can be so destructive to get exactly what we want to achieve our dreams, is the human tendency to turn things into I mean, it's an old-fashioned word, but idols, right? And idols are always destructive. What do we mean when we say idol? Any ideas? Like a little statue? I mean, it could be, yeah, but 
What are we talking about when we talk about idols? Yeah, something you put above God. Maybe something you put your hope in, your trust in. And that way your, your bank account can be an idol. If that's what brings you a sense of safety in the world. You know, we all live for something. Something captures our hearts, our emotions, our most fundamental allegiance in life, and it begins to drive us. And we all put our hope in something. And what's clear from both Scripture and our lives is that naturally, on our own, that thing will always be something other than God. And here's the thing about these something others, these idols. When we look to something or someone other than God to give us meaning, to give us hope, to give us happiness, ultimately those things will fail to deliver and probably break us in the process. And that's why God says, have no other gods before me. It's not like he's insecure. It's not like he's worried about what, like his self-esteem is a little low, and he just really needs you to like him. That's not it at all. That command to have no other gods before me is for us, for our sake. That's why scripture is filled with story after story about different kinds of self and idol worship and the devastating effect that they have. And Abraham, as Adam said, you guys are starting this series, Faith of Our Forerunners. Abraham is one of the central figures in the Bible, and even in world history, more than half the people in the world and, and the tribes that we see trace themselves back, Christians, Jewish people, uh, Arabic people, Muslims, trace their, their faith and their story back to Abraham. Why was he so special? Abraham, like nearly all people in ancient times, longed for a son, an heir that would carry on his name and his family. And according to scripture, God had come to Abraham earlier in his life and made him a wild promise. He said, if you will put your, your trust in me, I will bless all the nations of the world through you and through your descendants. But that meant that he and his wife, his wife Sarah, would have to have a child. And at that point, they had none. But they followed the call of God, and they left the country that, where Abraham had been born, and they went where God told them to go, and then they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And it wasn't just years. It was decades went by. And no child, at least no heir. We all know he kind of, <laughs> if you've read the story, his wife got a little impatient and said, give me a child with my servant. But that's a different story. And because of various disappointments, mostly the inability of this couple to conceive as they got older and older, I imagine that in many ways that desire to see this promise that God had made them, that became the deepest desire of their heart. Like the thing about which Abraham would say, if only I could have an heir, I could die happy. 
if only God would do what he promised to do. And finally, when it seemed like all hope was lost, a son named Isaac, which means laughter, um, it's probably a reference to both the way that they laughed, that Sarah laughed, especially when God told them that they would conceive in their old age, but also the joy that they had when finally conceiving and giving birth. I mean, he was over 100 years old when Isaac was born. He'd given up everything to follow God, left his home, his people, and surely now God had kept his promise and the story would end happily, right? Let's pray. No, that's not the end of the story. <laughs> Abraham and Sarah now had exactly what they wanted, but the question, I think, is now that you have what you want, where do your hearts rest? Have they been waiting and longing and sacrificing for God or for what he would give them? Was God just a means to an end? I think is kind of the, the question in the text that we're going to read tonight. To whom did Sarah and Abraham ultimately give their hearts? Had Abraham learned to love and trust God for himself or for what he could get out of God? God gave them exactly what they hoped and wished for, and then God asked them to give it all up. If you have a Bible, look at Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Verses 1 and 2 say, Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied. Here I am. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Now, say what now? What would you have been thinking if, if this word from the Lord had come to you? If this had been your story, the child you had waited decades for, finally had, and God said, go ahead, take him to this mountain and sacrifice him. What would you have been thinking? This is a serious question. I'm really wondering. You're like, no, I, I would not have. Yeah. What else? I heard wrong. Yes. What else? Yeah, I wonder if this is really God speaking. Yeah. Ah, maybe God, maybe God isn't like I thought he was. Hmm. That's a good one. But that's not how Abraham responded. Why? You know, was he callous? Did, didn't he, didn't, care too much about Isaac? No, I mean, God even says it, the son you love. Isaac was everything to him. But culturally, there was something happening here that's hard for us this many years later to see. Ancient cultures were much less individualistic than ours, right? For them, it was about the tribe, not the individual. And that's why childbearing was such a big thing for them. Like, why 
certain women in, in scripture, when they had trouble conceiving, it would, it would be a matter of, of tears and shame. And because for them, their, their duty was bound up in helping the tribe to continue, right? Helping their people to go on. Childbearing was a big thing for them, and no children meant your tribe would die out. And to not contribute children to the future of your people would be seen as kind of, well, that's shameful. And so all the hopes and dreams of a family would rest in their children, often in their firstborn son. And I'm sure none of you have rested ever your hopes and dreams in your children, so that's completely alien, right? The firstborn would get two-thirds of the inheritance, would kind of be seen as the standard bearer for the family going forward. But through the Old Testament, the, the whole Old Testament, there's another thread regarding the firstborn. Consistently, God says, the firstborn belongs to me. The firstborn animal, the firstborn son, the first share or first fruits of your crops. It was God's way of reminding them that ultimately he was the creator. It all belongs to him. And because the firstborn was their future, it was his way of reminding them that their futures were in his hands. And more, this was also connected to the weight, the debt of sin. It was God's way of reminding them that they all owed a debt to justice because of all the wrong, all the hurt, all the evil that was being perpetrated in the world. It was a visual picture of the fact that to sin, to engage in evil, is literally to throw away your future, to mortgage everything. But the only thing God ever asked them to sacrifice was the first fruits of their crops, never their sons, never. That's what pagan gods would do. God always allowed the people to ransom back their firstborn sons or animals with a small sacrifice. And that's why we see Jesus' parents taking him to the temple a few days after he's born and sacrificing what? It's in the song. Two turtle doves. Oh, see, that's where that comes from. Yeah, exactly. Two turtle doves. That was the sacrifice for the poor. That's what the poor would sacrifice when they had a firstborn son. They were acknowledging God's place, his, his claim on their firstborn, and they were, in a sense, buying that child back. So if Abraham had heard what he thought was God saying, get up and kill your wife, he probably would have rolled over and gone back to sleep thinking he had some bad hummus or something. Like that that, he'd, he'd write that off immediately. That would have been irrational. But when he hears God say, I'm calling in your debt, your firstborn son's life is forfeit. That wasn't irrational in his worldview. That actually made sense to him. God wasn't asking Abraham to just walk over and murder Isaac, but rather to take him to holy ground to make an altar and to make him a burnt sacrifice. And Abraham would have heard this as God is calling in our family debt. My son is going to have to die for the sins of my family. That's how he would have heard this. And though it would have been really difficult, it would have made sense. Look at verse 3. The next morning, Abraham got up early. 
He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. Did you catch what he said there? What was it? We will come back. Yeah. Good eye. I'm not sure how Abraham did this, honestly. I'll be perfectly honest with you. He knew God was holy. He knew that the sins of his family meant Isaac's life was forfeit. Yet God had always, always shown himself to be a God of grace, a God of mercy, not like the pagan gods of the people around him. And God had promised to bless the world through Isaac. So I imagine all of that was swirling in Abraham's head as they walked up the mountain. How can God be both holy and just and yet merciful? How will he keep his promise? He didn't know, but he went anyway. He put his trust and his faith in God. He told the servant, we're going to go up, we're going to meet with God and worship, and then we'll come back. And if he hadn't understood that he, and in fact the whole world, was in debt to a holy God, I don't think he ever would have gone. It would have made no sense. But if he had not also believed that God was a God of compassion and grace, he never could have made it up that mountain, I don't think. It was only the knowledge that God was both holy and loving that helped him make it up the mountain that day. Look at verse 6. He says, so it says, so Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire, probably had a box with a coal in it, and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, I, I love this, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the, we have the fire, we have the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? I love, it just kind of slowly begins to dawn on Isaac that, hey, something's missing here, right? He's starting to clue in. And here again is the faith of Abraham. Verse 8, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering. And the word sheep is not in the Hebrew. It just says God will provide for this offering. My son, Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. So what in the world is this story all about? Before you think this is just God messing with somebody, like on first read, this seems like a really mean trick to play on somebody, right? 
This seems capricious. It seems thoughtless. It seems insensitive. It seems cruel. All of that. So what is this about? Two things, I think. The first thing is something that Abraham probably would have been able to recognize pretty clearly as he thought back on this. And the second one, probably not so much. What Abraham probably could see in retrospect, walking down the mountain with Isaac, was that this whole thing was about loving God more than anything. And so, loving everything else rightly. Putting God in the proper place in his heart, enabling him to love his son the way that he should. After this whole incident, God says to him, now I know that you fear God, which is biblical shorthand, not so much for being afraid, but more about being holy and wholeheartedly committed to. And this was God saying, now we both know where your heart really rests. Now, God knows everything, especially our hearts. So it wasn't as though God needed to test Abraham to figure this out, right? So I think that this test was more about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac knowing something more than it was about God knowing it. But he basically says to Abraham, now we know that you love me more than anything else. In other words, God knew Abraham would be a pivotal figure in history, in the history of the world, and in the story of redemption and restoration that God was writing. But in order for Abraham to actually be that, his heart had to be in a certain place. His heart had to be set first and foremost on God and not anything else. And what was the most likely idol in Abraham's life? Isaac, the son he had waited and hoped and prayed for for so long. That thing that he had put all of his hopes and dreams into. And knowing Abraham's story, you can see it would have been easy for him to come to love his son more than anything else in the whole world. If he didn't already, right? I mean, that would have been really easy as this son got older. And that would have been, here's that word again, idolatry. And that would have been destructive to both Abraham and Isaac. And so God though in our eyes was treating Abraham and Isaac pretty roughly, was actually showing them great mercy. Isaac was a great gift to Abraham, but he would never be safe to have and hold, and Abraham would never be able to fulfill his destiny until he was willing to put God in the primary place in his heart. And as long as Abraham never had to choose between his son and obedience to God, he would never be able to see that his love for his son was becoming idolatrous. And so as crazy, as absolutely bonkers as this story sounds to us with modern ears as we read it, I think we look at it again and we say sometimes 
the most merciful thing God can do is make us choose between himself and the thing that we love the most, the thing which is becoming an idol in our hearts. And here's where it becomes clear. We talked about this this morning, if you guys were there. Our idols are almost always good things, really good things in our lives. Career and work, money, love, relationships, all really good things, but all things that when they become the main thing in my life begin to twist and ultimately crumble under the weight of making me happy, fulfilled, giving my life meaning. And I know probably some of you are thinking, I get career and money and all that, but kids, can you really love your kids too much? <laughs> the kids say, no, you can't. But here's one question. Have you ever seen what happens to kids whose parents' lives revolve around them? One of two things, either they are spoiled rotten or they are crushed under the weight of their parents' expectations to achieve and to accomplish. But either way, making your kids your idol, making your kids the thing you love the most doesn't turn out good for either you or them. My wife, my kids, my job, nothing can take the weight of bringing my life meaning. Nothing but God. And all of those things are good things. But loving God and knowing that I am loved by God is the best thing. And more, I will never be able to love anything, my wife, my kids, my job, the world, rightly and in a healthy way until I love God more. Because without that, I will always make them my idol and try to put the weight of my happiness on them. And my wife doesn't deserve that. My kids don't deserve that. Now take a deep breath. Here's the good news. God will most likely not deal with you in the way that he dealt with Abraham. And that's a good thing, right? He had a way of dealing with people in the biblical narrative in such a hyperbolic, over-the-top way because he wasn't just dealing with them. He was dealing with us as well. And he wants us to get it. And as much as, I, as I'm sure Isaac had some things to work out in therapy years later, even he would want you to know God loves us enough to ask us to deal with our idols. Abraham may have wondered about and questioned God's character going up the mountain. I get that. But he didn't question it on the way back down. After this, he knew God was merciful. And more, he saw vague hints of something that we can see now clearly. On that same mountain, almost 2,000 years later, God would provide another sacrifice. 
another firstborn son stretched out on wood to die, but this time no voice saying stop. God giving his son, his only son, whom he loves. Instead of a ram dying in place of one person, Isaac, the one that was called the Lamb of God would die in place of all people to save any who would put their hearts, their faith, their trust in him. At the end of the day, Abraham found that God provides, especially when we lay down what we think we need the most. God tends to show up with what we actually need the most, which is himself. And this honestly is the practical answer to the question of how. How do I let go? How do I love my kids in the right way? How do I love and relate to my job the right way? How do I care enough about the world but not so much, right? I know what my idols are. I know what my heart goes after, but I can't seem to pull, pull it off of those things and put it where it belongs. God saw Abraham's actions and he said, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son from me. How much more can we look at the sacrifice God made for us and say to God, now we know you love us because we see that you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love, but gave him up for us. And when we finally begin to get that, like deep inside, and that works its way in, that makes it possible for us to rest our hearts on him, in him, and nothing else. We have to know deep in our souls that God so loves us, so cherishes us, so delights in us, that we can rest our hearts, our hopes, the weight of our happiness on him. Look, I know, like I said, Bonker story. And Jesus alone is the thing that makes any sense of this. Ultimately, the, the only way that God can be both just and punish sin and evil and be merciful and give us grace is because of what Jesus did for us. Because in Jesus, God himself is stepping off the judge's bench and taking the penalty for sin himself. Abraham's agonizing walk up that mountain was the final step in a long journey. A journey of God changing him and remaking him from just another guy to one that half, fully half the people in the world trace their roots back to. A pivotal person in the history of the world. And someone through whom God would ultimately provide salvation to anyone who wants it. But that never would have happened if he hadn't dealt with the idols of Abraham's heart. And in the same way, I know God wants to deal with the idols of my heart. And I know the most painful times in our lives are when our idols are being threatened. When the thing that we have rested, when we lose that job that we have worked 20 years to get. When there's a 
when there's a diagnosis that might take someone we love from us, right? I'm not saying that those don't, those will not continue to be painful times. But I know that I can face any of those things that might happen to me. Because God himself has promised he will never leave, never forsake me, will always be present with what I really need, which is he himself. And when we look at what God has done for us in Jesus, when we are captured by the love of a God who loves us this much, I know I can lay down my idols and love the things in my life the way I should love them. Would you pray with me? God, this is a hard story. We are not going to lie. This is one that makes us, that probably leaves us with more questions than answers. But God, I love the way that this story points to what you have done for us in Jesus. You provided a sacrifice to take the place of Isaac. And 2,000 years later, your own son laid down his life for us. So God, would you help us to think about the things that we love? Would you help us to love them rightly by loving you even more? It's in the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. May the God of Abraham, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob surround and sustain you. As Abraham and Sarah trusted a promise as big as the sky, may we have faith in the God who provides according to his purpose and within his good time. And just as Abraham looked to God with each sorrowful step up the mountain, his son close behind, may we look to the Father who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. So whatever path lay before you, know that the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the presence of the Holy Spirit is with you now and always. Go in peace.